0: Wednesday is a special day. Do we have any veterans in our midst? I know we do. Couple. Couple. Thank you. Thank you so much for your service uh, to us, to our country, and uh, just so selfishly in the difficulty of that. I- I'm not a veteran. I-, I can't imagine or even pretend to imagine what it would be like to go into a place where I know on a constant basis my life is threatened. My well-being is at risk. I can't imagine what it would be like on the eve of a battle or the morning of a battle to hear the, the call from a leader saying, let's go, we're going, we're going to take this hill, we're going to take this city, we're, we're going to fly these missions, and, and some people may not come back. I can't imagine the trust that that would take in that kind of leader. Because it takes a lot of faith to follow a leader into battle. I had an experience with, with being a leader uh, one time in my own life and, and somebody having faith in me to follow. It was when I was a freshman in high school, which right away you can see we're, that we're in trouble. Um, I was a freshman in high school and I had moved to a new city. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know the school. I didn't know the layout of the school. We had been to orientation. My high school was about 2,000 students, so it was a rather large high school. I think the building was built to house about 1,200 students. Uh, So to get from one class to another, you're shuffling through the the hallways like this. It was very, very difficult. And so there were tricks that you would learn, and one of them was that the building was shaped like an L, and so you could go from one wing to the other outside, and that was the best way to do it, if, if the weather wasn't miserable. And so my first day of school, I thought I was all smart, and I I uh, came out of class, and I was upstairs. I knew I needed to go downstairs, go outside, across the, the commons area there, and over into the other wing, and I could get right to my class. And I would make it in time. So I went down the stairs, I walked out of the building, and I came outside. And what I saw looked nothing like what I thought it should look like. I had come out the wrong side of the building. Completely the wrong side of the building. And there was no easy way to just go inside, walk through a hallway, and get to the other side of the building. No, 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 they don't plan the schools that way. It was you had to go around and around and around, and then you could get out. So automatically, I knew I was late. That's not really the leadership story. The leadership story is I turned around, and I saw a kid coming out, another freshman. You can tell one freshman to another who's a freshman, because you both have that blank look like, I don't know where I'm going. And I turned to him, and I just sort of jokingly went, oh, I went the wrong way. And he looked at me and said, are you kidding me? I was following you because you looked like you knew where you were going. (laughs) I thought, how does me not knowing or not knowing where I'm going help you at all? We may not even be going to the same class. Now, funny story, finally got to my class late, sure enough. I sit down, kid sits down right next to me, I turn to him, it's him. We were going to the same class. We became friends and remained friends uh, pretty much throughout high school. He had picked the wrong leader to follow. His faith was misplaced. We're going to be talking today about following God and this idea of the call to faith. What does it look like that God has called us to faith in him? What does that look like in our life? What does it look like in our faith and our beliefs? And we're going to look at the story of Abraham. And in this passage in chapter 12 of Genesis, in fact, you can open up there to Genesis chapter 12, uh, we're introduced to Abraham, but here he's called Abram, and I'm just going to apologize in advance. I'm, I'm going to try to call him Abram, but we all know him as Abraham. His name will be changed a little later on. So if I go back and forth between Abram and Abraham, please forgive me. I hope it does not shake the foundations of your faith. I think we'll be okay, uh, but I know I will. We've been tracing this idea of the plan from the beginning. We started, obviously, in Genesis chapter 1 with creation. And this idea that God created us to live in his presence, under his blessing, under his favor, and what that meant that was we got to live in his presence and he would provide for all of our needs. We would live in this active sense of worship to him. And in that, he gets all the glory and we get all the joy and the blessing. It was a perfect relationship. And Adam and Eve turned and looked at God and said, thanks, but no thanks. We've got this. We're going to do this on our own. We want to do it our own way. We want to know right from wrong. We want to be able to say what's right and wrong. And they did what God had told them not to do. And sin entered the world. And so far, we've been tracing then from Genesis 3, when that happened, all the way to Genesis 11 at the beginning in the Tower of Babel that we looked at last week. We've been tracing these effects of sin throughout the world. And Genesis in chapter 12, really between 11 and 12, takes a big shift. It shifts from tracing the story of sin to now tracing in a major way the story of God's salvation. We've talked about it before that this book was written and recorded at a time when the Israelites were walking from uh, Egypt and slavery in Egypt. And they're walking through the desert to the promised land. That's when they get the book of Genesis. God reveals it to Moses. He writes it down. I assume over a period of time he would stand up in front of the people as they traveled and read it to them. And so there's a lot in the book of Genesis that is encouraging the Israelites along the way. It's their story. It's their biography of where they came from and how God has ordained every step along the way, even in their distant history. I think it's the same for us today to say as we live in faith in this world, as we struggle to hold on to a truth that is taught by Scripture, has been revealed from God, and yet, frankly, is not very popular in this world today, how do we hold on to that? How do we keep faith in that? And what does it look like for us to continue to follow in faith today as Abraham had to so long ago? So let's start in chapter 11. I told you to open up to 12, but you can back up to 11. I'm not going to read verses 10 through 32, uh, you can take a glance at it to see why. It's, it's a genealogy, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just so-and-so was the father of so-and-so and lived this long and then had these many children. And it goes on and on and on. Uh, again, not to say that it's any less important, but I want to spend the bulk of our time in Genesis 12, 1 through 9. But let me just say this about the end of chapter 11. If you remember back in verses 1 through 9, if you were here last week, and if you weren't, I'll, I'll catch you up a little bit, in Chapter 11, verses 1 through 9, we had this Tower of Babel. And here are the people. After the flood, they're spreading out across the face of the earth. And evidently, they were getting nervous. they're, They're kind of wondering, how are we going to take care of ourselves? How are we going to control our own fate? How are we going to make something of ourselves? What is it we can hold on to to get through this world? And they come up with a brilliant idea. Let's gather together. And we'll build a city where we can all live. And we'll build a tower that will make us impressive and make us great. And it's almost like they're, they could say, well, then when they wake up in the morning and they go, well, how do we know we're important? How do we know this makes sense? Oh, look at the tower we made. This is wonderful. And God steps in and says no. And it's not that what they wanted necessarily was wrong. It's that they were doing it on their own. And God knew there was no joy there. There was no security there. There's only misery and despair. And so he frustrates or confuses their languages. The building program stops, and they are scattered. So that's what leads into this. And then we have this genealogy. Now, I do want to make a couple points about the difference between this genealogy, this list of generations, and some of the other ones. In Genesis chapter 5, there's another genealogy shortly after the fall of Adam and Eve, and it traces Adam's line. And it says, Adam lived this long, and then he had these children, and then he died. And then the next passage, and -and so-and-so lived this long, had this child, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. And there's this phrase repeated over and over and over again, and it traces and shows that death has entered the world. Now, if you look at this genealogy in chapter 11, there is no mention of death. doesn't mean they didn't die. (laughs) They did. But that's not the point of tracing this line. This is the beginning of God tracing the line of his plan to this man named Abram. And it's in Abram that God is going to continue his work and his plan from the very beginning to bring life to his people. So the emphasis is no longer on death, it's on life. Another genealogy in the book of Genesis in chapter 10 traces the lineage of each of the sons of Noah. And it's really, here's Noah's sons, there's three of them, and each one of them had their family, and here's what happened to each one. It's a very general story. This is very specific. Each parent in the story has just one child. Now, they had more, but the is about each one. And it's tracing a specific family line. And it's tracing that family line all the way to Abram. And so that's where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 12. The plan has continued, even in this messy, messed up world. And I praise God for that. Because I don't know about you, but, well, I do know about you. We live in a pretty messed up world. And I can at least speak for myself, I'm pretty messed up. And I praise God that in a messed up world with messy, messed up people, he continues his plan. Otherwise, none of us could be here today. That's part of his grace and his mercy to us. So let's look at this call of faith, starting in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let me read this for you. You can follow along in your Bible. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. If you really don't have a Bible, take ours. That's fine. Just take it home with you as long as you read it. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is Abram's call to faith. God reaches out to Abram and basically says, Abram, you need to trust me. Everything else that follows all the other stuff comes out of Abram's faith, his trust in God. In this passage, there are two what's called imperatives. They're they're commands. It's something that Abram is to do. The first one's pretty obvious. It's right there in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, what is it? Go. Go. Okay, That one's pretty obvious. Abram, here's where you are. Here's where you need to be. You need to go. The second imperative is not as obvious. It's at the end of verse 2. At the end of verse 2, he says, I will make your name great. We'll talk about that in a second. And you will be a blessing. That's actually an imperative. It's the second imperative. It is a result of what comes before, but it's also a command. Abram, you are going to be a blessing. You are to be a blessing. So I want to look at this. I want to look at these two imperatives. Let's start with the call to faith is a call to go. For Abram, go means leaving something. In fact, I would say for all of us, the call to faith always involves leaving behind something that we're holding on to, trusting in, uh, relying upon in our life, and going and following God and trusting in him. That may mean a physical leaving of where you are, but it may just be leaving behind ideas and faith that you have misplaced in something else in order to replace it with a faith in God. Abram had to leave his country, his people, and his father's household. In this culture, the things that were just listed there, your country, your people, and your father's household, these are things that would define a person. I live right now probably about 14 or 15 hours drive away from my parents. I've never lived close to my parents. I think the closest we ever lived was, I don't know, eight or nine hours? Oh, that's right. Once we did live three three hours away. Uh, my identity if i came to you and, and introduced myself and said hi i'm dave day son of charles day you would probably look at me like why why'd you say that who's charles we don't know him because i don't define my identity in my relationship with my parents i love my parents That's not how we introduce each other. I would probably introduce myself as I'm Dave Day, pastor of Orchard Community Church, or I'm Dave Day, I live in this house, I live in this city. This is how you would relate to me. But in this culture, your identity was wrapped up in who is your father. Your financial security was wrapped up in your father's household. Your future well-being, your future job, your future employment, the way you were going to care for your family, all of it was wrapped up in your father's house. So, for God to come and say to Abraham, you need to leave all that behind. It's like God saying to Abram, all that stuff that the world says you need to depend on, all that stuff that you have taken and used to define you and you're counting on for your security, all that stuff, you need to leave it behind. And you need to trust me. Do you see the call of faith there? It's extreme. Now I think we can translate that to our day today and say, what is it that we trust in in the same way? Maybe it's not leaving your father's household. I'm guessing many of us wouldn't struggle with that. We love our parents, but I don't think our identity is tied up in that. Maybe it's our financial well-being. Maybe it's the current job that we have. Whatever it is, to say, I'm not going to trust in that anymore. Going requires motion. It, it is not only leaving something, there's the first motion, but then it's going to somewhere. And look at what God says. I love this beautiful, well-thought-out, well-planned-out description that God gives to Abram about where he's going to go. He says, go to the land I will show you. <laughs> if I'm Abram at this point, I love putting myself in, in Bible stories. If I'm Abram, I would turn to God and say, I need a little bit more information here. Uh, a map, you know, a packing list. Maybe, Uh, what's the climate like where we're going? Can you give me a little bit of a hint? I mean, what hemisphere at least? Uh, What do I need to take with me? What do I need when I get there? What am I going to do when I get there? Is there going to be a place to stay? Is there like a Hampton Inn or something? I mean, what is this going to be like? Abram gets none of that. And I think for a very good reason. God is telling Abram, just as he tells each one of us, you need to trust me. God is saying, I want you to trust me, God, not me, Dave, God. We need to trust God, not in the specifics and the details of his plan. I think too often we come to God and say, look, God, I love you. I really trust you. So if you could just lay out all the details of how this is all going to work out, then I will trust you. That's not the way it works. Trusting in someone means trusting wherever they lead, no matter what it is. Trusting that when you get there, that person is going to be enough that God is going to take care of you. So go means leaving something. It means going somewhere. Going also involves a purpose that God has. Look at verse 2. God says, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Here's Abram and his household. It seems like Abram was pretty well off. He had a pretty big household, but still he's just one guy in kind of his family and his household. And God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. What is the nation that came from Abram? The Israelites. Now, again, remember, you're the Israelites traveling through the desert, and you're getting this book for the first time. You say, oh, this is where we started. This is where we come from. This is our birth story as a nation. But it's not just the Israelites. We all, well, maybe not all of us, but maybe you grew up singing another really catchy and annoying song, Father Abraham Had Many Sons. Many sons had father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so are you, so. There you go. I I don't want to do the motions. Okay. Your right arm left. Okay. This blessing that came to Abraham traces its way through all of the Old Testament. The nation of Israel as they walk from Egypt to the promised land, it, it goes through King David as he is this righteous king leading his people. It goes even into exile and then their return. It goes all the way to a manger on Christmas morning when Jesus Christ is born. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God told Eve, Any, even in the judgment and the punishment, someone is going to come from you that's going to conquer sin and death going to crush the head of the serpent. And here's that same plan, that same thread of grace continuing through the call of Abram. Part of the purpose is to make him into a great nation. Another part is I will bless you. I think it's important to pause at this moment and talk about what blessing is because there's a lot of confusion about this. A lot of times we think that blessing is God making us happy, God giving us everything we want. God's simply taking care of all of our needs so we have no wants whatsoever and we're, we're comfortable and life is easy, and that's blessing. That's us taking our definition of what blessing would look like and putting it on God, and that's a bad idea. We need to look at Scripture and say, what, what is the blessing that God is talking about? In general, in Scripture, blessing is living under God's favor for God's purposes. It's God giving people what they need to fulfill God's plan for them. Okay, now that's still pretty general. Ultimately, the blessing of God in Scripture is God himself. The greatest blessing that God gives us is him, his presence with us. Now there are benefits of that, but he is the blessing. Our greatest need is what we were created for in the first place, to live in the very presence of God. That's what God gives us in his blessing. In Genesis 26.3, God tells Abraham's son, Isaac, I will be with you. He says the same thing to Jacob in Genesis chapter 31. In Exodus 3.12, he says this to Moses, I will be with you. In Joshua 1.5, he tells it to Joshua, kind of the leader that took over after Moses. The Israelites had the tabernacle and the temple in their history where God dwelt among his people, blessing them, living among them. 2 Samuel 7.9, God tells David in the midst of this wonderful passage of this huge promise he's giving to David, he says to David, I've been with you wherever you have gone. And then we get to the New Testament, and we have Jesus, Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. There's the blessing. So often we come to God, and it's like we have our Christmas list. God, I want to be blessed, and here's how. And God says, I've got something way better than any of that. I want to give me to you, and I want you to live with me and in my presence. God's greatest blessing is his presence. The other blessings that he's given to Abram, if you look at the end of verse 2, he says, I will make your name great. Turn back to chapter 11, verse 4. In the story of the Tower of Babel, and I referred to this last week, but it's important to bring up again. They had this purpose. In verse 4, it says, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. And we talked about how that was, we want to be important, we want to be self-sufficient, we want to have authority over our own lives, our own destiny, we want to make a name for ourselves. And God said, no, no, you're doing that apart from me. It's never going to satisfy you. But we can have, in a story like that, we can have a picture of God that's just up in heaven going, oh, you wretched, miserable sinners, here you go again doing this awful thing. Who do you think you are? You are nothing, you are awful, you need to stop. And some of us have grown up with this message of that's what the Bible says. Now, are we wretched sinners? Yes. But we can't stop there. Because look, here they are seeking a name for themselves in the Tower of Babel, and God comes down and he judges that and stops it. But then he picks it up in chapter 12 with Abram. He says, I will make your name great. This thing that your heart is longing for, God says to us, that you think you're going to find in these other things. You're not. You're going to find it in me. That thing that you are working so hard for that you think will bring you satisfaction is actually me. And I'm going to do this for you. That's what God tells Abram. I will make your name great. And then he comes into the second imperative. You will be a blessing. You see, God's call to us is never just about us. It's about Him. And His blessing in our life is then to overflow to those around us. In America, we've kind of had this idea of a personal faith, a private faith. And, And that's okay to a point. It is good to have your own faith. You need to trust in God. But your own faith should never, ever, ever just stay your own. It should overflow to the people around you to say, hey, let me tell you about my Jesus. Let me tell you about what Christ is doing in my life. God didn't just save you so you could have your ticket to heaven. If you are saved as a Christian here today, God has saved you not only for your benefit, but then to use you as a base of operations to work in the lives of the people around you. And so we have this idea of blessed to be a blessing. In Scripture, God never just blesses somebody for their own benefit. He pours into our lives so that that can then overflow to the people around us. Sometimes I fear we have become very selfish Christians. And we've so emphasized our personal salvation in us getting to heaven, and my personal relationship with God, we've begun to ignore the people around us. We are blessed by God, absolutely, so that we can then be a blessing to other others. Well, how? Look at verse 3. God says, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. We don't like this concept of cursing. Blessing we like, cursing not so much. But this was a common concept in this day and age. It was this idea of of a Lord, a king, saying, look, if somebody hurts you, I'm going to help you by stepping in and judging that person. I'm the king, that's what I'm supposed to do. If somebody is good to you because I love you, I will be good to you. This was God's way of saying, Abram, I've called you to something you cannot possibly achieve, but I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to help you every step along the way. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. It is a statement of protection, but it's also a statement of the overflow of God's blessing in the relationships in Abram's life. And then speaking of overflow, he says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And as we've been looking out through Genesis, there's this tracing of this plan of God. And here it is again. And it's not just God reaching this point in history with Abram and saying, this is all about you. He gives an indication to Abram just as he did with Adam and Eve. This is going far beyond you. We can trace this very thought all the way to Jesus Christ. We can trace that thought beyond Jesus Christ to you sitting right here today. If you're a Christian, somebody somewhere saved, or I'm sorry, shared Jesus Christ with you, and you are saved because of that. And that lineage can be traced back. That genealogy of faith can be traced back at some point to Abram. That's powerful. But you know what's amazing as well? That genealogy of faith, that tracing of that blessing, is going to continue. From you, it's going to go somewhere. Hopefully, many somewhere. Many people, hopefully, will come to know Christ because of you. And then somebody will come to know Christ because of them and because of them. And the blessing keeps on going. Let's be careful we don't just hoard that and say, well, I've got my relationship with God. I'm good. And that blessing gets cut off. Abram's call was never just about Abram or his personal happiness or even his personal security, though I believe he was happy in God. I believe he was secure in his relationship with God. God called Abram to faith in God, in his plan, his purposes, and his power. Now let's look at how Abram responded, verses 4 through 9. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and all or, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. There's a lot of culturally specific things we could go into. What is his household? Who are these people? I don't want to go into that. I want to focus on just verse 4. Here's God calling Abram to something huge. Life-changing, drastic step of faith. How is Abram going to respond? Verse 4, so Abram went, as the Lord had told him. When we have this call of faith, and I think every day is a call of faith in our lives, the first response has to be obedient action. That's what Abram did. He went. He could have just stayed there in his home where he was. Oh, God, that's a wonderful plan. I really believe that you're going to do that. This is great, but I'm just going to stay right here. Is that faith? No. If he doesn't actually get up and move, you can't actually say that there's faith there. The action comes from the faith. The obedience follows the faith. It proves the faith. It strengthens the faith. Without the obedience, you have nothing to prove that you actually had faith In the first way, faith will always be expressed in obedience. And there's two possible errors that we need to ignore, or I'm sorry, avoid, not ignore, avoid. One is obedience without faith. It's this idea that I'm going to work for God, and if I work really hard, God will accept me, people will be impressed by me, I'm going to work really hard. We call that legalism. It looks like faith, but it's not. Because it's actually a trust in ourselves, in what we can do, how we can clean ourselves up, how we can fix ourselves. So that's one error we need to avoid. But the other error we need to avoid is faith without obedience. Believing in an all-powerful, loving God who has a plan for us, who sent his son to die on the cross, that we might be brought from death to life, who wants to work through us to call other people to repentance, believing in that must show itself in our lives, or we have to wonder if we really have faith. I think there's a lot of Christians today, they're saying, oh, I have faith, I have faith, I have faith, and then we go about our day as if nothing has ever happened, and God didn't actually enter our reality and die on a cross for us at all. And I think the Bible has some very strong words for that. Is that really faith? True faith drives obedience. I trust, I believe, therefore I follow and obey. So one step in this faith of Abraham, this response, is obedience. Another response that he has is worship. Look at verses 6 through 9. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and I on the east, he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Now this seems like just a a survey of the geography as Abram's moving through the land, but it's more than that. It tells us a bit about the reality of Abram's new situation. Remember, God had called him to leave behind all this kind of comfortable stuff And go to the land. And I I wonder if Abraham thought, oh, this is going to be great, man. When I get to this place that God has called me, I'm going to live easy. Everything will work out. It's going to be like going back to the Garden of Eden. I'll have everything I possibly want. And look at what it says. God brings him to the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. One thing you need to understand is that in the Canaanite culture, a great tree was not just a big tree. Oh, it was a big tree. A great tree, a big tree, was a place of worship. It was a place to worship the gods and goddesses of their religion. The next phrase tells us, it adds on to that, at that time the Canaanites were in the land. So here Abram has left everything behind and he is brought to the site of this great tree. Now I don't know if there was worshiping going on at that moment, but I imagine there was at least stuff lying around from their worship. And he's in this land of this pagan culture, the Canaanites. Now, I know you might want to say, oh, Dave, that's not very politically correct to judge any one culture. The Canaanites worshiped their gods and goddesses actively and open through practices and acts of sexual things that we can't even talk about. That's the way they worshiped. As a part of their worship, they would take their children, they would burn them alive in a fire, So forgive me for not being politically correct, but these were wicked and awful people doing horrific things. And here's Abraham following the plan of God to this promised land, and he arrives at this great tree, and I imagine there were altars strewn around, remnants of worship, and maybe even acts of worship going on to these pagan, horrible gods and goddesses. So imagine you're Abraham. What are you thinking at this point? Wow, God, thanks a lot. This is so much better than where I was. We all want God to lead us. But I think often we expect God to lead us right back to the garden, to Easy Street, to everything going perfect and well and wonderful and all the difficulties of our our life removed. That is part of God's plan. We see that at the end of Revelation. All sin wiped away, living in God's perfect holy presence. But between... Now and then, we are called to live in a dark time and a dark culture because that's where God wants to use us. He has a mission for us. And it's in this place, surrounded by this pagan culture and this pagan worship, in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring I will give this land. And so here in the midst of these Crowds of people that must have lived in the area look at what Abram does. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. He probably looked like a fool to the people living there. You're building an altar to who? You're doing what? No, no, this is our land. You don't belong. Your ways are not our ways. Your ways of thinking and, and your, your ethics and your morals, those are foolish. Your beliefs and a one true God, that's ridiculous, that's crazy. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? We are to live our lives in this dark place, worshiping God in faith. That's what we're called to. Now, Abraham, as he walked through the land, would set up these altars. And to set up an altar was an act of worship, but it was more than that. It was a declaration, God is here and he is at work. So as he moves through this pagan place, he makes statements of faith, one after another after another. God is here and he is at work what a statement of faith. I wonder if people looked at our lives, if they would see the same thing. Would they look at us and say, wow, that person really believes that God is here and God is at work? I hope so. Because the response of faith is worship. So what about us? Well, we talked about this call to faith requires going. When Jesus called his disciples, do you know what he said to them over and over again? What the call of faith was to them? Follow me. And, and, and even at one time, they said, where are you going? Where are you going? And he said, hey, just come and see. Follow me. In Matthew 4:18 through 22, Jesus calls to Peter and Andrew saying, come, follow me. Then he calls to James and his brother John who were fishing with their father. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. In James, or I'm sorry, Matthew 28, 19, it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. We can't think as modern day Christians we get to just stay comfortable where we are doing what we're doing, and God's just going to pour his blessing into us and everything will work out just fine. God says, look, you need to go. Our going requires leaving something. If the young men fishing didn't leave their nets to follow Jesus, how could they say they actually had faith in Jesus? James 2.18 says, Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Because we are saved by Christ and have faith in Him, we leave behind sin and sinful ways. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 22 talks about putting off the old self. We leave behind the relying on our own way of thinking or a worldly way of thinking. We leave behind anything and everything that hinders us for the journey of going. Listen to the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 8 verses 34 and 35. Then he called to the crowd, he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. We need to understand today that following Jesus is costly. It requires going and leaving some things behind in our life, but along the way there is this blessing of being on mission with God and having His blessing overflow in our lives to the people around us. It's all about God's purpose, and our purpose today, as, Matthew, or as Jesus said in Matthew 28:19, is to go and make disciples. Do you know what a disciple is? It's a follower of Jesus. As we follow. We invite others to follow, and we follow together. Our going is about God's purpose to be with us. Matthew one twenty three, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew 18.20, where two or three gather together, Jesus is with us. And then in the Great Commission that we've already talked about, it starts with Jesus saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he gives the commission, Go and make disciples teaching them, or baptizing them in the name of the, the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So he starts with, I have all authority, and then listen where he ends, and surely I am with you always. To the very end of the age. What do we have possibly in this world to fear if the one who has all authority sends us and says, I am with you always? We have nothing to be afraid of in this world. Nothing can take that away from us. Our God is at work in a powerful way in our lives and in the world around us. Even if we don't see it, we just have to go and follow him. And then Revelation 21, 3 through 4, at the end of Scripture and the end of all history, when God's plan from the beginning is fulfilled and all sin is wiped away, it says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. In faith we follow Christ into difficult places. As we sang in Oceans and in it It Is Well, God is calling to you to follow him. I promise you you will find more joy along that journey than in anything else but i also promise you that where god leads will never ever will not never it won't be easy it's going to be hard because god has a mission for us in these difficult places he's not taking us to the sunny shores and the sandy beaches and the palm trees he's taken us where sin is often the darkest and he says there that's where i want you to live for me i have a purpose for you there I'm going to bless you, and you're going to do great things in my name, and I'm going to work through you. And in faith, we worship. We know God and his promises. We grow in that. We trust in that. We live in that, and then we declare and proclaim that to the people around us. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with God today. Maybe today is your call to faith. Maybe today is God reaching out to you with his gospel of salvation saying, trust me follow me. I hope you'll respond. Maybe you've accepted that call one time in your life, but you've kind of taken a detour along the way. You're doing your own thing and you're thinking, I got this, no problem. God's saying, look, trust me. Follow me. I know you. I've saved you. Come back. Maybe you're living each and every day following him and you need to hear the encouragement today. God's got you right where he wants you. Keep following Him. Tomorrow, wake up and worship God and follow Him just as you have been doing all along. Every day is a call to faith. I think every day we need to ask ourselves, how are we responding? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I think about what Abram did, I wonder what I would have done in that situation. and I don't know. But God, you've got me in my own situations. You've got the people here in their own situations. You give to each one what you equip us to handle. You give to each one of us an opportunity to bring glory and honor to you, to step out in faith and worship you, and to be blessed to be a blessing to those around us. And so I pray that we would answer the call to faith in our own lives. That we would learn more about you and each time we learn something new about you it's, it's an aspect that we can have faith in and trust in you. And then we, we can respond and must respond in obedience to that. I pray we would do that. Because God, the, this world in its darkness, in its lostness, it needs to see the light of Jesus Christ. And you have chosen in your wisdom And in your perfect plan to shine that light through us, broken and sinful though we are. And so I pray we would rise to that occasion through the power and the grace that you give us. That we would respond each and every day to this call of faith and we would say, I will trust in God. I will trust in you and in nothing else. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.